Hamlet Podcast, Episode 7. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. As we left things last time, Macbeth had thanked Ross and Angus for bringing him this great news, that he has become the Thane of Cawdor, and, he wonders, perhaps the crown is also coming his way. Given that the first part of this strange, unsolicited prophecy has come true this quickly, he turns to Banquo to remind him of what the witch has promised for his friend. He says, Do you not hope your children shall be kings, when those that gave the Thane of Cawdor to me promised no less to them? This is fairly clear. Macbeth rightly asks if Banquo is becoming maybe a little bit optimistic now that their good fortunes appear to be real although it's worth noting he doesn't say witches, even weird sisters, he just says, those that gave the Thane of Cawdor to me. Already even he is getting suspicious of how to address these strange creatures. Banquo, still cagey, replies, That trusted home might yet enkindle you unto the crown, besides the Thane of Cawdor. But tis strange, and oftentimes to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles, to betray us in deepest consequence. If we believe in everything those women promised, all the way to the end, trusted home, then it might lead you all the way to the throne of Scotland. Banquo uses the word enkindle. It sounds like a desire being sparked and then fueled in a fire. It's absolutely accurate, since we are watching this hope set Macbeth's ambition ablaze in real time. Never mind being Thane of Cawdor, that's already in the bag. What might actually happen is that Macbeth might get the crown. But Banquo is still apprehensive, and very wisely he reminds Macbeth that such weird things are not to be trusted. Oftentimes, to seduce us and win us over to the dark side, the devil and his minions, or instruments, might tell us small things that are true, that will lead us astray and make us believe their promises, so that they can betray us when we are in too deep and it's too late. Oftentimes, to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles, to betray us in deepest consequence. King James himself wrote something similar in his book on demonology, his study of witchcraft, a handbook against the devil. He writes, For that old and crafty serpent, being a spirit, he easily spies our affections, and, lo, conforms himself thereto, to deceive us to our rack. The devil himself can see what we really desire, and then can use this against us to bring us to our ruin. It's sage advice whether you're being led by a stray by a witch on a moor, or a snake in a garden, or anywhere else. If something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Now Banquo rather conveniently moves aside to have a chat with Ross and Angus, saying, Cousins, a word, I pray you. And since the three gents move to one side, Macbeth has the stage for a soliloquy. Two truths are told, as happy prologues to the swelling act of the imperial theme. I thank you, gentlemen. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. If ill, 
Why hath it given me earnest of success, commencing in a truth? I am fain of Cawdor. If good, why do I yield to that suggestion, whose horrid image doth unfix my hair, and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical, shakes so my single state of man that function is smothered in surmise and nothing is but what is not. The rhythm here is exhilarating. It's not all smooth iambic pentameter because what Macbeth is starting to think about is so hair-raising. He acknowledges that the witches told him two true things. He's Thane of Glams and now Thane of Cawdor. True and true. But these will be little more than happy prologues to the main story, if the third part comes to pass as well. Everything up to the point of becoming king will be prologue, which seems very timely as we broadcast this this week. But then being king will be the major act, major chapter, the major episode of Macbeth's life. The idea of the imperial theme, that's the major storyline for him, being king, ruling. Shakespeare keeps things interesting by having Macbeth acknowledge the other three. Perhaps they offer him a dram of something to drink, or some small piece of business, to remind Macbeth, and us, that they are still there. He acknowledges them, but he brushes them off, saying, I thank you, gentlemen. And then he turns back to us. This supernatural soliciting. It sounds almost like a hissing whisper. All of these S sounds, the witch's appearance and seductive tales and conversation with him, cannot be ill, cannot be good. He can't decide what to make of it. Surely the delivery of such amazing news can't be bad, especially since it started coming true so fast. What they said was partially true. But if it's bad, why has it started off so smoothly and truly with what he calls earnest of success? He is now Thane of Cawdor. But if this witchy intervention in his life is good, why is he starting to think about things so horrific that his heart is beating in a way that is completely unnatural? He says his hair is standing on end, and he seems to feel his heart knocking against his ribs rather than sitting where it should inside his chest. If good, why do I yield to that suggestion, whose horrid image doth unfix my hair, and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? There was a famous 19th century actor who actually committed so much to this moment that he rigged his wig so that he could make the hair on his head start to stand up and unfix itself in this moment. Apparently it was effective, although it would probably get a big laugh these days. The reason that this is so shocking is that what Macbeth is thinking about is that perhaps he might kill the king. That's the surest way to get his hands on the crown. And Macbeth is a killing machine who could do the job without difficulty. But killing a king, one's own king, that's a crime and a sin far beyond anything he's done. Bear in mind, too, that this play was first put on stage within a year of the outrageous plot to blow up the king and his entire parliament in November 1605. Killing the king was all too real a threat in Shakespeare's London. Macbeth does not actually articulate the idea. He doesn't say what he's thinking about, even though we can guess. 
he can only call it a suggestion, because even that is having this extreme physical effect on him. He tries to calm himself with a line that my own mother used to quote at me whenever I had a bad dream or got worried about scary things as a child. He says, present fears are less than horrible imaginings. What we imagine in our own heads is often far worse and more horrible than what we think we're afraid of. We can be our own worst enemies. Macbeth is acknowledging his shock at what he started to imagine, and that even the thought of this course of action, in which murdering the king is just a fantastical idea that has popped into his head in the last few minutes of stage time. And again, do remember that we get to see him having this idea live on stage. The very idea shakes him up so much that he's consumed with the thought of it and he can barely move. He says, function is smothered in surmise. And nothing is but what is not. This last line can mean many things. He's thinking about things that haven't happened and do not exist, and yet even these nothings are having this effect on him. Or that nothing is real to him now except that one part of the prophecy that hasn't happened. Nothing is but what is not. That could be a scary glimpse of the change that is taking over him. Banquo finishes the line, commenting to Ross and Angus about how intense Macbeth's focus is. Look how our partner's wrapped. Another use of that word, wrapped, again with the double meaning of wrapped attention or perhaps wrapped up in his thoughts. Macbeth's thoughts continue. If chance will have me king, why, chance may crown me without my stir. These surrounding few lines are all in a kind of jangled mess of feminine endings. There are too many syllables, because none of these thoughts are neat, because now what's in the air, and in all our minds, is very dangerous stuff. Macbeth rightly reminds himself that if all of this is destined to happen, if chance will have him king, then destiny, or chance, alone may crown him, without him having to do anything. No accident that the word me is the extra syllable in the line here. If chance will have me king, why chance may crown me. Again, it's Banquo that completes the next line, keeping the urgency and the tension up. Without my stir, new honours come upon him, like our strange garments. Cleave not to their mould, but with the aid of use. This is another of those clothing references. Obviously, Shakespeare was interested in how things that don't fit will never be comfortable. Banquo here likens the new honour of being Thane of Cawdor to a strange or unfamiliar garment. It won't feel comfortable, he's saying, until Macbeth breaks it in and gets used to it. To an extent, it almost feels like Banquo is covering here because Macbeth is so consumed with these ideas. Banquo probably knows what he's thinking about, but he doesn't want Ross or Angus to catch on. There's also a small text note, I should say, here. Some erroneous versions might have new horrors come upon him here, but I've no idea why, since it doesn't really make very much sense. So beware. Next, it's Macbeth who gets the second half of Banquo's final line, as if finishing his own little daydream about how he might get to become king. Come what come may, time and the hour runs through the roughest day. No matter what happens, every day eventually comes to an end. It's a fairly proverbial thing to say. At the end of the day, it gets dark. For now, perhaps, whatever will be, will be. So he's not going to do anything just yet. Banquo gently reminds him that they are all three waiting for him now, and he says, Worthy Macbeth, we stay upon your leisure. 
Macbeth seems fully reset now and he's back to his regular self. Give me your favour. My dull brain was wrought with things forgotten. Kind gentleman, your pains are registered where every day I turn the leaf to read them. Let us toward the king. Think upon what hath chanced, and at more time, the interim having weighed it, let us speak our free hearts each to other. Here we have the first lie that Macbeth tells. He asks them to pardon him for his little reverie, give me your favour, and tells them that he was just thinking about things he has already forgotten. Not true. He insists that he will remember the pains Ross and Angus have taken to bring him this great news about being Thane of Cawdor, and that he will remember it every day as though he had written them in the book of his heart. And now all four of them should travel to meet the king. He turns back to Banquo, too, and suggests that they have a good think about what just happened to them, and once they've had a bit of time to do so, to digest all of this, they can speak their free hearts to each other. Banquo knows just as much as he does, so Macbeth will need to trust him, and indeed he'll need Banquo not to tell this story if things get complicated. So it's wise of him to speak so openly with his friend here. For the last time in the scene, Banquo finishes Macbeth's line with his agreement. He says, very gladly. And we'd almost believe that it'll all be okay, except Shakespeare manages to weave the trouble ahead even into the verse itself. The line, our free hearts to each other very glad. Lee has eleven syllables, and so it doesn't quite sit right. It's like a minor chord in music, quietly threatening that there's still trouble ahead. Macbeth, the leader, winds up the scene with, Till then, enough. Come, friends. And the four men exit. I have to say, this play really is cracking along. We've only had seven episodes so far, and already we're three scenes deep, and things are going on in Scotland. Next time, as you might guess, we'll be back with the king, and we'll see how the aftermath of this battle may be shaking up. We're also getting hints of big news for Macbeth. Ross mentioned Ernest of a greater honour, and Macbeth himself has started to wonder what destiny might have in store for him after this earnest of success. Be sure to stay tuned, in earnest, and we'll see. Thank you very much for joining me, as always, and I'll speak to you next time.